It's exciting, exciting stuff. Actually going to have a choice on Wednesday night between uh, Joel over here in the Brighton area and then uh, Greg's teaching in Dorchester area. Excited about that in addition to uh, Friday night. So, Okay, why don't you please rise for the reading of God's word. We are going through 2 Corinthians chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We are in chapter 1, verse 23. Paul, writing by the Holy Spirit, says, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul, that to spare you I came no more to Corinth, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy For by faith you stand. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for uh, the fact, Lord, that this is but an expression of your heart towards us, Lord that even as sometimes you correct us, Lord, that it comes only from your heart, from where there's so much affliction and anguish and tears, Lord. Father, I just pray that every man, woman, and child in here this morning would see that that is your heart towards them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So we left off last week in verse 20, which says, For all the promises of God in Him, in Christ, are yes and amen. In other words, they can be trusted. And then the next verse, two verses actually, Paul goes on to list two of those promises, which we can rest assured are yes and amen. Verse 21, it says this promise. Now, he who established us, in other words, he who established you in Christ, with you in Christ, and has anointed us or anointed you is God. So we talked about that word anointed. The Greek word means set apart for a specific purpose. We talked about that word us next to the word anointed. God has anointed us. That includes you. That includes me. You might think that the word is used in the church, uh, the way it's used in the church so often, it's just only for 
famous preachers and evangelists and people with healing ministries. No, the Word of God teaches no such thing. You have given your life to Christ. The Bible says God has anointed you. He has set you aside for a specific purpose, set you apart, a specific calling, and that's promise number one, that God has a calling for your life. That's a specific purpose. It's one of the wonderful things about coming to the Lord, is the world just sort of uh, is wandering around in its own soul with purposelessness. One of the wonderful things about coming to Christ, there's purpose, a specific purpose that's different for you than for the person who is seated next to you. That's promise number one. Promise number two, verse 22, it says, He, God, who has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts, as a guarantee. The word seal, in the Greek it means place a mark of ownership on something. Now think about branding, like branding cattle. You have been branded by God as His property. Even as you have trusted your life to Christ. And it says here that uh, it, you've been given the Spirit of God, this is a promise, which is a guarantee of what is to come, speaking of the assurance that you can have of heaven and the assurance you have just of your relationship with God. Then again, it goes on in verse 23, where we began this morning. Moreover, I, I call uh, God as witness against my soul. It's a pretty grave thing, huh? Calling God as witness against his soul. That to spare you, I came no more to Corinth, to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. So what's this about? Well, remember at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 16, verse 5, Paul had told the church that he was going to come to visit them. He was going to follow up his letter with a personal visit. But now here in the second letter, verse 23, chapter 1, he, he tells them, well, he had decided not to go. Why? It says to spare them. To spare them of, of what? Well, uh, those of you who were with us as we went through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians uh, know something about that. At the time that Paul wrote his first letter, uh, the church in Corinth was on the verge of collapse. The men and women of the church had banded into rival factions. They were backbiting each other. They were arguing. People were in the church, were ripping each other off. Then they were suing each other. Marriages were on the rocks. There was open drunkenness and sexual immorality. The church service each Sunday was... A mess, each person showing up with their own agenda, their own idea of what they wanted to do. It was a big flesh party, uh, rather than a time to learn God's word and, and worship the Lord. And so, in his first letter, Paul addresses each of these issues one by one. Boom, 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 boom. We saw that. And he doesn't pull any punches. 
And he knew what was at stake. If the church continued in the manner of their behavior, it was going to fall apart. I was reading this week that 7,000 churches, I don't know where they get these statistics, but 7,000 churches uh, a year uh, shut their doors. Many of the times it's because of division and, and, these, and, and, and just sin issues in the church. And so uh, one by one he confronts them on each issue in his letter and he ended the letter with telling them that he would follow up with a visit. However, um, what has happened here is that after he sent this letter, it was a heavy letter, uh, he realized that a personal visit would just be overbearing. And I so appreciate personally what this teaches me, a pastor, about spirit-led, Christ-like ministry. He realizes, Paul, that if he follows up his letter with a visit, he'd be flushing out. He would have been trying to change them in his own strength. And God forbid someone changes because he's right up there in their face rather than the Spirit of God uh, doing it in their life. And, you know, his presence may overwhelm them. And and so, listen, you know, it's one thing to confront someone in love about their sin, which you and I should be doing. It's the only loving thing to do. However, it's another thing to be following following them around, hounding them, and playing the Holy Spirit in their life. Oh, how I've heard, learned this one, well, this lesson, the hard way. It's better just to, 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 to get this lesson from the Word of God. So I really believe he, he heard from the Lord because uh, um, we know in chapter 7 that the letter was all that was needed. Chapter 7 of this chapter where uh, we learned that the church in Corinth did just a big-time U-turn. Uh, it says in that chapter, referring to the effect of his first letter on them, Paul says, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing uh, of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. And, and, and just such a lesson to me because so oftentimes if I, if I take my hand off a situation, then I can see what God is doing. But if I keep my hand on it, then I, I, after the fact, I'm like, well, what if that was just because pressure I was putting on. So Paul is able to see what the Holy Spirit had done uh, in their life. And so he's saying in verse 23, I did not follow up my letter with a personal visit because I wanted to spare you. I didn't want to pull a heavy on you. I didn't want to get in the way of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so then uh, he goes on to say in verse 24, not that we have dominion over your faith, that word dominion means control, not that we have control uh, over your faith. Look, I don't want any of you thinking that I, I'm trying to manipulate or control with, uh, or have something in, in your life that is meant only for, uh, for God. I don't, I don't have dominion over your faith. So, oh, here too, what a message for the body of Christ. Too many pastors are just abusive in this area. Laying their hands on people's lives, not literally, but 
figuratively speaking, and trying to exercise just control over people, the very people they're supposed to be serving. Here recently in our church, one of the sisters who has come to be a part of the fellowship had difficulty with the pastor of her church that she was from because he refused to release her as if he had some kind of authority in that matter. And it's not the first time this has happened. This happens all the time, this type of thing in the body of Christ. And that's just one of the ways that pastors just try to control, manipulate the people in the church. And let me tell you what's going on when pastors do that. They're bringing Old Testament practice and theology into the into the new covenant where Jesus says, I, the Son of Man, if the Son of Man sets you free, you're free indeed. And one of the things you're free of is a priest, Old Testament priest, getting in the middle or getting in between you and the Lord. In the Old Testament, the high priest represented the people before God. The priest would make confession for the people, sacrifice for the people. And, and you know something? That was just a beautiful foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and how he, our high priest, he would represent us before God, present us blameless and without fault before the Father, being clothed with his righteousness. But let me tell you, when he died on the cross and resurrected, the Old Testament priesthood was abolished forever. Hebrews chapter 4, four uh, 14 says, seeing that we have a, such a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who passed through the heavens, let us hold fast our confession, confession and come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain grace and mercy in our time of need. No priest other than our high priest. We can, we can uh, come, it says the word of God, boldly into his presence. And so Jesus on the cross purchased with his life direct access for you. To the Father, no priest, pastor, mother, father, or anyone else has any business getting in your way. It's not my role or any other person's role tell you what to do in your life, whether to come or go here, or whatever the issue may be, God loves you so much. That's why he sent his son into the world. He wants a relationship with you. I was listening to a sermon by Ray Stedman. Anybody ever hear of that guy? He's a wonderful uh, pastor in California, 40 years pastoring, went to be with the Lord in the 1990s, and he was pointing out the hypocrisy of the Protestant church. And how you constantly hear Protestant churches criticizing the Catholic church for having a pope. So that Catholics are required to accept certain things that he says is infallible. Meanwhile, there's a pope in each and every Protestant church in the country. <laughs> I love that. And so that's so true. There's so much abuse in this area. And, and it's not only because of pastors wanting to exercise that control. It's because people, people want someone exercising that control in their life. And both are wrong. 
God wants a relationship with you. And so First uh, Corinthians one twenty four again, not that I have dominion over your faith. The pastor's not a pope. What does it say he is? He's a fellow worker. Not that I have dominion over your faith, verse 24, but, but our fellow workers. So not that we have dominion over your faith, rather, but we are fellow workers for what? For your joy, for by faith, your faith, you stand. It's your faith. It's not mine. So I'm your fellow worker. I'm your helper. According to Jesus in John 13, my job is to wash your feet. And that can mean many different things depending on whose feet I'm washing. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, describes the work of a pastor. Preach the word in and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. Teach, be watchful in all things. Endure affliction. Do the work of an evangel and fulfill, evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. That means service. That means serving you. That's my job. It's the job of every pastor. It's the job, really, of everybody in the body of Christ. Notice what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say, tell people what God's will is for their life. No, God puts his mail for you in your mailbox, not mine. He wants a relationship directly with you. He doesn't want me in the way. He loves you too much for that. And does that mean you don't go to the pastor for counsel and advice? Of course not. The Bible says you should. And, and, and I love to be able to, to serve you all in that way. Does it mean that you don't support, pray for, gather around the leadership of your pastor? Of course not. Hebrews 3.13.7 says, remember your leaders who speak the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. What all of this does mean, uh, though, is that no man or woman, pastor or priest, should be playing substitute for the Holy Spirit in your life. You know, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation. Ooh, okay? Revelation. Ooh, eh? Chapter 2, verse 6. It should be a sobering message for any pastor. And uh, verses 1 through 7, Revelation 2 is a letter from Jesus to the church in Ephesus. Remember that? Remember that he, after rebuking the church for losing their first love, their first love being who? Jesus himself. He actually commends them. Do you remember what he commended that church for? He complimented them. He says, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, whose practices I hate, he says. Wow. I think mean, you take that pretty seriously. Jesus hates the practices of the Nicolaitans. What, what's that? And, and, and so scholars believe that the Nicolaitans was a cult that rose up in the early church, in and around it, which, which had introduced the office or reintroduced the office of the priest into the church and the function of the priest uh, of the Nicolaitan was to act as an intermediary between people and God, the very thing that Jesus Christ had suffered indescribably. Pain and anguish to abolish forever. Is it any wonder why he hates it? He's thinking of the cross and what he purchased. And now he's seeing leaders in the church reintroducing the very thing that he abolished. 
So when Jesus died, the veil in the temple uh, between the people and the holy place, God what tore it in two, that veil. And so what God has torn away and taken away, no man or woman should step back up into that place. And so again, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. The pastor's greatest pleasure is not uh, to have a bunch of people running around at his beck and call. It's to see people being built up in joy. It says, for your joy. Verse 1, chapter 2. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And so again, his heart for them is not to bum them out, fill them with sorrow. It's not to burden them, lay condemnation on them. It's, to, it's, it's for their joy. And then he goes on in verse 3. He says, and I wrote this very thing to you, referring to his first letter and all those rebukings, those corrections uh, that took place. He says, I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. You know, when people, when I hear people criticizing each other in the body of Christ, I take them to this verse, verse 4. I hear people criticizing and, you know, tearing into some, someone because of some real issue in the person's life. Or maybe they're tearing into a church or a pastor or a, an evangelist or a ministry. And I hear people and I ask them, well, why are you doing that? And why are you saying that thing about that person or ministry? And Jesus' last prayer before he was arrested was, God, make them perfect in one, in unity, just as you and I are unified. The Word of God says that the unity between you and I is supposed to be the same. This is Jesus' prayer. As the Son and the Father. Wow, that's, that's pretty deep. And I'll say, so why are you doing this? Why are you doing what is contrary to the Word of God? And so many times they respond by, of all things, they bring in the Apostle Paul. What do you mean, contrary to the Word of God? I mean, exposing sin and heresy. That's what I'm doing. Just look at the Apostle Paul. He did that. He even named names. And so I say, you know, you're right. He did. He exposed sin and heresy. But uh, come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. Is it your heart? Is this your heart to these people that, this brother, this sister, that you're criticizing behind their back? Verse 4, out of much, uh, much affliction, that word used only one other time in the New Testament to describe what the world's going to be like during the time of tribulation. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, his heart was just shaking and tormented because of what was going on in these people's lives. That's why he was criticizing them. 
with many tears and anguish in my heart. And so, and I'll ask them, is really, is there anguish in your heart as you're speaking about this sister, this brother? Are there tears in your heart? Or I hear people, I hear people say, well, just look at Jesus and the Pharisees. Man, did he whack them. That's what I'm doing. I agree, he didn't pull any punches, but when he approached Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, a few days before he was crucified, by those very people he was cruci- that, that, um, that he was criticizing, he broke down and wept for them. Is that your heart? Brother and sister, I just want to ask you this morning, and I ask this to my own heart, that person man, that woman, that friend that you have all these issues with, that ministry, that church, that pastor, brother, sister, and you're airing, you're airing those issues you have in your heart, maybe you're doing it to whoever is listening, maybe you've chosen just a couple people, whatever the case, uh, you know, you're convinced you're justified in talking about it because the person is in sin, what they're doing is wrong, what they believe in or what they're practicing is not right. But the real question is, is your heart breaking for them? Is your heart weeping for them? Do you pray for them? It's so hard teaching about this stuff because my own heart falls so short. So let's continue. Verse 5. He switches... Subjects here. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent not to be too severe. So he's telling them to not to be too severe about something. Verse 6, 7, and 8 explain what he's talking about. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you, reaffirm your love to him. What is going on here? Verse 6 is referring to a punishment that was opposed on a man in the church. And Paul is saying in verse 7 that they should forgive uh, this man lest he be swallowed up in sorrow. So what's all this about? Well, remember Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5. It was in that chapter that Paul confronted the Corinthians for the fact that they were allowing a man to be part of their fellowship who was living in sexual immorality. And the church in Corinth, they had had a a big-time problem with pride, and they were boasting, and uh, they were sort of like the 12 apostles who, whenever they got their free time, they were arguing about who was uh, the greatest among them. And and so uh, Paul comes uh, along in his first letter, and he says, why are you boasting about how spiritual you are? And in uh, chapter 5, verse uh, 2, he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even practice among the Gentiles, a man has his father's wife. Ooh. And Paul goes on to tell them that they should be putting this man out of the fellowship, lest his sin 
spread throughout the fellowship. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole subject of uh, church discipline, when and how it should happen. You can get the CD on 1 Corinthians chapter 5 if you'd like. But uh, uh, the long and short of what happened was that, that, that Paul, they took Paul's advice and they put him out of the church, this man. But apparently what happened was this. The guy repented. He did a U-turn. It had the very effect it was supposed to have. He turned uh, uh, his life back to the Lord. But the Corinthians, uh, and, and so often this is what happens, they, they, they had not brought him back into the fellowship. And, and so in verses 5 through 8, Paul is telling them, listen, Corinthians, you're being too severe. That's what he says in verse 5. Verse 6, he says, uh, this guy has suffered enough. Verse 7, a beautiful verse. On the contrary, you ought to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. That word swallowed up in the Greek, other, in other places, Hebrews, it's actually used for the word drown. Uh, in 1 Peter 5, it's used for the word devour. I mean, uh, yeah, devour. So uh, you need to comfort him, lest he be devoured, drowned, swallowed up with too much sorrow. They were allowing this guy just to sort of wallow in his condemnation. Verse 8, therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. You know, the Lord really spoke to my heart about these verses. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but when I read those verses in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, it, I start to like squirm, even when like I'm by myself. I, you know, come on. Guy having sex with his father's wife? Lord, I'm trying to have a polite Bible study here. <laughs> and and it, you, know, I, you know, there's some verses that you just wish weren't in the Bible. You ever run across a verse like that? That's one of them. You know, you know, I'd like to teach it. You know, teach about this thing. Why, Lord? You know, what, why is this? Why not use, like, something else? Someone who has a problem with Robin Banks or something. You know, or, or spreading heresy around the church or running around, uh, uh, you know, and his wife or whatever. But a guy, you know, having sex with his father's wife. Many commentators believe, by the way, that that's referring to his biological mother. Why, Lord? And I really felt like the Lord spoke to my heart on this. Because I want every man and woman to know that there's no sin, however dark, however low, however defiling, that prevents a man or woman from being restored to fellowship with me. And the Lord just spoke so clearly about that. This had been a run-of-the-mill sin. And not only is, is, forgiveness, is there forgiveness for this type of thing, there's comfort and love. So God just doesn't forgive and leave us in our pain. He, there's comfort there. There's love. Verse 7, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort Verse 8, and reaffirm your love. That's God's heart towards this man so that we'll know in 2008 
if we've been just so utterly defiled. That's God's heart towards us. Psalm 107, verse 35 says, He, God, turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. So that's what he does with the human soul that's been defiled. I can't tell you how many people that I counsel on a regular basis who really struggle that there's something in their past, there is something about them, something they've done, some, something that's, maybe it's just their thought life. Just sort of over-the-top stuff going into their mind and, and they're convinced that they're, uh, you know, they, they've, they've done this thing that makes them different. Something, there's like a flaw or something preventing them from being a part of the kingdom of God. So often I hear this. Something keeping them outside of God's grace. It, it won't work for them. Everyone else, yes, not them. And, and I really believe that's because of that kind of struggle. The Holy Spirit included what he did he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, though it is embarrassing for us to read, much less to preach about. All of us need to see clearly that though the Lord in no way approves of the conduct. No, he said, put the man out. That there's more than enough, more than enough mercy and grace. More than enough room in the kingdom of God for a woman or a man who falls victim uh, to it. Now, do you think that God did not know that in the year 2008, Satan would be working overtime, coming up with the ugliest, goriest, twisted stuff to defile people with? Do you think God doesn't know that? And you think that he doesn't have a plan for that? Of course not. He does. And the plan is here. Verse 7. Forgive, comfort, love. That's his heart towards that. Maybe you're here this morning and you've struggled with something you've done. Maybe something you've done many times. Maybe it's your thought life, whatever. I have good news for you. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Your sins, yes, they're red as scarlet. They may have been. But Jesus makes them white as snow. There's more than enough room in God's kingdom for you. As far as the east is from the west, Jesus has removed our sins from us. What he purchased for us on the cross, so wonderful, so powerful, so free. We can't work for it. It's offered to us for free. And we receive it by faith. So what Paul is telling the Corinthians to do with this man has already happened in the heart of God. And so continuing on in verse 9, it says, For this end I also wrote, that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For in, if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes. Excuse me, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest, verse 11, Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now, so this is a verse actually that's quoted a lot, but... Let's actually read it in its context. What is Satan's device 
that we should not be ignorant of, that meaning that we should be mindful of, that we should know and understand and be watchful of. The, Jesus is constantly saying in his word, be at watch. He's referring to spiritual warfare about what Satan, the enemy of your souls, is trying to do in your life. So what is this device that we should not be ignorant of? It's to keep people through lies and deception bound up with an unforgiving spirit. That's the device of Satan that is being referred to here. Satan wanted the Corinthian church to hold on to their unforgiveness. Show me a church which is bound up with unforgiveness. I will show you a church with no fruit, no power, no effect in the community. I will show you Satan rejoicing. Show me a forgiving church, not a church that is light on sin, but a forgiving church, and I will show you a church that's changing the world. Is it any wonder why Satan has so, is so incredibly involved in this area of forgiveness, so incredibly involved and active, you know, stirring up people's hearts, against one another. So if you're bound up this morning with bitterness, any unforgiveness in your heart, listen, brother, sister, that's not the work of God. It's the work of Satan. The Bible says it's not my words. I love Colossians chapter 3. I quoted every time I'm in a meeting where there's some conflict between a brother and sister. Therefore, as the elect of God, Colossians 3, verse 12. Holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all, these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. You show me a forgiving church, a, a church that has this spirit, is controlled by this spirit, the spirit of God, and I will show you a church that is changing the world, changing uh, the community, changing the city of Boston. So the good news is Jesus gives us the grace to forgive. What did we already uh, read this morning? 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22. God has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So the Holy Spirit will give you the grace to choose to forgive. I remember there was someone just was in Stephanie in my life who just unbelievable act of betrayal against us and or you know or at least we we thought at the time it, it was and I remember Stephanie uh, just and I just suffering so much and I remember Stephanie saying I just can't forgive but we were just praying to the Lord, God, 
this is obviously a gift because we can't do it. And one day, she, from one day to the next, her heart was just released as was mine. It's a gift from God. It's not something that you can do in your own strength. I'm not trying to minimize what someone has done to you in your life. But if you want to live a fruitful life, you need to get real serious about forgiveness. I want to close with actually something that our Lord Jesus has to say about all this. Turn with me to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 21, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Then Peter came to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up uh, but up to 70 times seven, meaning indefinitely. And he says, therefore, the kingdom of God is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Talents was a, a, a weight of a measure of, of gold. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay it all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, uh, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures and until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother's trespasses. And so, 10,000 talents. This servant owed his master 10,000 talents. Now, William Barclay, a well-known Bible commentator, uh, has studied up on this and, uh, and found that the entire revenue for one year, for the whole nation of Israel and Samaria was 900 talents. That's the whole revenue. That's what everyone is making in 
the whole country was 900 talents. And here you have this king. He's asking his servant for 10,000 talents, 10 times, over 10 times, what everyone in the whole uh, nation of Israel is, is making in one year. Imagine if someone came to you and said, oh, okay, pay up. You owe 10 times as much as the revenue of the United States of America last year. Whoa, I better go find a second job. You know? <laughs> the point of the parable is this. It was impossible to pay the debt. There was nothing this servant could do in 100 lifetimes and 1,000 lifetimes to pay that debt. The debt was so much. So, uh, he, you know, so th this guy is, is forgiven, then he... He, he, you know, he falls down before the king. It says the king is moved with compassion. He forgives the debt. And the servant is released. And then he goes out and he finds, out what, finds one of his fellow servants, it says, who owed him 100 denarii. Now, uh, one denarii was what? It was the wage for one day. It was a working man's wage. It was like the minimum wage, if you will. So 100 denarii, that's no small debt, right? That's pretty significant, I think. And it was a pretty great, you know, it was a pretty significant debt that this, um, this guy had uh, accumulated. And, uh, you know, someone refuses to pay that. That's kind of painful. But the servant demands it anyway. Uh, and the guy falls at his feet and begs him for mercy. He says, I'm sorry, and has him go thrown in prison. And the master finds out. This guy had done this, this guy who he had forgiven 10,000 talents, 10 times the, the revenue that everyone in Israel had made uh, that year. And, and he brings him before him and says, you wicked servant. You wicked servant. And he, and he orders the, the, the person to be delivered, it says, to his torturers. Wow. Until he should pay all that was doing, which of course he's never going to be able to do in a thousand, in ten thousand lifetimes. So, the meaning of the parable God is the king, he's the ruler, the inhabitants of earth are the servants of the kingdom. Uh, we owe a, a debt uh, that there's no possible way to repay. No possible way. It's ten times what everyone in the United States is making. In a year, every corporation, every man, every woman, every, every child is making in a year. It's just unfathomably more than we could ever repay. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid a debt that you didn't have the slightest possibility of repaying. And, and, and so it's not only the amount of the sin, 10,000 talents, but it's also the kind of sin, as we've already discussed, the depth of the sin. So the cross that powerful. But then it says that in verse 32, it says, you, Jesus, or the Lord says, you wicked servant. Actually, this is God the Father. You wicked servant. Why is call, so why is he calling this man wicked? He's calling him wicked. Not only, and, and, and we missed this one, not only because he refused to forgive a debt after he himself had forgiven a debt that was so large it can't even in a thousand lifetimes be measured. But, but not only that, but because also what the king had to go through to forgive that debt. That's why he calls this person wicked. God had to watch his son be whipped with a scourge to the point where he was unrecognizable. 
He had to watch his son be nailed to a cross. He had to watch his son be mocked. A spear thrust in his side. He, he had to look on his son, who was totally pure, innocent, and blameless, have the sin of the world be placed on that innocent body. And worst of all, he himself had to smite him, bruise him, punish him with his holy wrath, with the judgment that belonged to us. So why is this man called wicked? Not only because he refused to forgive a debt but after he had been forgiven, but he had despised the gift. He had despised the salvation, the forgiveness, and that it had cost God so much. So I don't know about you, but you know when I come to church on Sunday morning, I come to, I come to be changed, to have the word of God change me. And this morning, I want my heart to be changed by the word of God. This one. I want a heart that receives forgiveness. I want a heart that gives forgiveness. I want a heart that worships Jesus for everything that he's done for me. If you've never asked Jesus in your life, never given, trusted in Christ, we're going to have a couple of people after the service right up here after the worship. It's a simple prayer of faith. They'll pray with you to do that. So this morning, by faith, allow your heart to choice to receive forgiveness, to give forgiveness, and most importantly, to worship God. Let's pray. The worship team can come up. Father, what a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful gift we have in your son. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness this morning. We ask for your forgiveness, for your forgiveness. So oftentimes, Lord, for despising the gift, for ungrateful hearts, not living our lives, Lord God, in such a way that is grateful for what you have done for us. Lord, we praise you this morning. We praise you for the cross. We thank you for that your forgiveness, Lord, for a debt in 10,000 lifetimes we could never repay. But, joy, uh, but the joy that comes, Lord, you, for, you not only forgive us, Lord, you, your word says as we read, you comfort us, you turn a wilderness into river, Lord, a barren land into water springs. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning, God, in that dry place, I ask, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you bring life and water to their soul. Father, I, I just pray if there's anyone who is not called upon the name of Jesus to be saved, that you do that work in their heart too, this day. We praise you, we thank you, we need you, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you could uh, join us by standing. We're going to sing uh, once again, and I think along with the message, you know,
the, the course is this. And, and once again, I look upon the cross where you died. And, um, you know, just by faith, you know, again, thinking, you know, looking upon the cross where we're forgiven. And also we can learn to give forgiveness. And Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice. You became nothing, poured out to death. And many times I that your gift of life. you're dismissed and uh, if you'd like prayer there'll be two people up front to, uh, to pray with you